morning. If you got your Bibles, go to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 4. Get that. Let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, God, help us to focus. Help us to learn, God. Pour forth your truth. Open up the eyes of our understanding. Let us see clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Let's read. It said, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. From Paul's right down. Now we begin, been talking about man being made in the image of God. And we came to the conclusion that Christ is that image of God. And these last couple of weeks, we just took some examples of going back and forth about how we express that image. And that image is focused on who we are other than what we do. And that who we are dictates what we do. And just showing the parallels of that, the life that Christ lived, the same life he expected us to live. That Christ was a God, a man of compassion. So we're supposed to be people of compassion. But in this talk about compassion and in transitioning to where we're going and in understanding the corruption of the image, there's a couple of things I want to put forth that's going to help us make sure everything understand. And it's talking about the nature of man. What exactly is a man? We know how man was created, what man was created for, but truly what is a man? And this is a subject that gets touched on in church. But the ideas are dominated from secular society. As to help you understand, people usually don't talk about this. There's a couple of basic ideas when it comes to men. And the two dominating ideas have creeped into the church. The one that pretty much dominates our day in our society is the materialistic view of man. That man is basically flesh, blood, He's a biological creature. And that if you truly want to understand man, you must understand the biological makeup of man. And that's the basic of most secular ideas in societies. Even most of the, the, the systems that they use to educate our children and how they create their, their programs of discipline is based on what they call behaviorism. And the psychology of behaviorism comes from the idea, the basic fundamental one, the anthropology of it is that man is basically a flesh materialistic creature. And if you can learn how to manipulate and control the materials that make up man, you can control the dictates and the habits and the life of man. And that's why we get all these ideas and the debates about nature versus nurture and so on and so forth. Because it comes from the idea that man is basically a flesh creature. So when they try to understand our children, the dominating field now that's growing and growing is neuroscience. And they got a vast thing of neuroscience. And all the neuroscience is they're studying what goes on in the brain when we do certain things. And they're drawing certain conclusions from that. So we want to understand why it is that people 
put one sock on and one shoe on, then one sock on and one shoe on instead of two socks and two shoes. We let them do that over and over again and look at their brains and see what their brains are doing. And then we begin to break down and categorize people into certain these firings that we see going on in their brains. And we can explain to you why you put sock shoe, sock shoe instead of sock, sock, shoe, shoe. Because they think all of you is contained in this wiring we have up here. And that's why in, in our educational system, a reward-based system is a big part of discipline. Because these ideas was passed down. It's this crazy dude. I don't see how he get to be so dominant in our world and in our makeup. But a dude named B.F. Skinner. And he created this little thing called the Skinner Box. And he's used this stuff on his own children. Because he got this great breakthrough. That he can understand the behavior of people and train them how to live and do right. How can he do it? Because they just brain. And if we rewire their brain, we can change the way they act. So he had this little thing where he'd give prompts and things to his children and he'll shock them <laughs> if they move and respond the wrong way. That's, <laughs> this was his way of discipline. He wrote a whole lot of papers about this thing and these things been included into our educational system. That's why our reward and punishment based system is a big part of our educational system. Then Skinner got a breakthrough. That rewards work a little bit better than the shock. Just like a dog. When you do right, you give him a treat. He respond better than he do when you give him a slap. And that's how we make it to the place where we are now. But the whole idea is that we are basically body creatures. And that the wiring that goes on in here and the chemicals that move through here dictates who we are. Now, there's a problem with that. And we're going to flesh it all the way out back to the scriptures in a minute, but there's a problem with that. What's the problem with that? We live in a fallen, messed up world. And we recognize within ourselves certain motions and certain responses that are contrary to what we believe we're supposed to be. There's certain impulses that we have that goes contrary to what we think we understand the way we're supposed to live. If you give me an example. Let's just take, pick on a man this time. Men, generally, picking on men, a tired man is one of the worst men you can be around. Very tired man. Temper becomes short. His drive to do dissipates. He don't want to do nothing. And he's short by putting up with stuff. And if we understand biology, this all can be tied to the lack of chemicals, endorphins, the lowering of the testosterone that goes on once a man has reached a level of fatigue. It kills his drive. Brain started to slowing and shutting down. So he ain't quite thinking through things the way he's supposed to. Now, but what we have when we accept this philosophy that this is who we are, that our body is controls our emotions, our body controls the way that we live, what you have is an excuse. 
So now a man has a right to be upset, to respond harshly to his family, to shut himself off in a cave, because I'm just being a man. And the thing that amazes me is parts of these ideologies, even though we reject them in the church, we accept it into the church. Because most of the time when you hear a teaching on male and female relationships, they're going to talk for a long time. And they're going to give you this idea about man, this caveman type man. His words are few. And man need to be recharged because he have to go into his cave. They ain't read none of that nowhere in the scripture. Secular psychologists put this stuff out and we accept it. So now we train women and we train people in marriage that when your husband is this way and this way, you let him go and he just get to go do his cave thing and you stay away from him and he get to be angry, he get to sulk just because that's the way he is. And you need to understand that about a man. And so we grow up men with this idea and they continually quote unquote struggle with anger because they got an excuse for it because I'm just being a man. That's what I'm saying. You need to understand. Give me my space. You're a man. Once you took her in and you began to have these children, you took them into your space. So all this is part of your space. So if you can't be a man with them in your space, don't get married. <laughs> because the two shall become what? One. So your space is her space because she a part of you. So if you can't live and be who you are without having to separate, if you can't control yourself, understanding the failure, the frailties of who you are, you need to not get married for a long time. And then you also need to understand that you are being less than a man. Because a man's body don't control the man. A man controls his body. That's what Paul said. Every man need to learn how to possess his vessel in honor. We're going to make it to that. But there's the other side of the coin. Where people get real deep. And we ain't physical beings. We're spiritual beings. That's who we are. You are a spirit that has a soul that lives in a body. Anybody ever heard that before? That means y'all went to one of them deep churches. (laughs) You are a spirit, you have a soul, and you live in a body. That's what they tell us we are. What's the problem with that? We get this notion from that. Now you got this thing that called your spirit. That's who you are. It gets saved. You have a soul, but your soul don't get saved. You live in a body, your body ain't saved yet. So you got two things working against one. And it creates this idea of you sort of schizophrenic creature because you got a soul telling you one thing and you got a body telling you one thing and you the spirit in the middle got to learn which one to listen to. So you stuck. Do I do the soulish thing or the body thing? And it also creates this confusion that we understand. We don't understand what to do with these things called emotions. Like what do they fit? Because these deep churches, they told us that the spiritual man, see that's the will and the intellect. 
Why the soulish man? See, that's where your emotions and your affections and all your desires come from. So you got to learn how to shut up the soulish man and just be the spiritual man. Then we live in reality and we realize this thing that they call the soulish man, these desires, the affections, they don't seem to go away. No matter how spiritual we get to be. I still desire. I still have motions. I still have response. Like, what do they fit? I need to learn how to kill and not be a soulish man and just be purely be a spiritual man. But then we, see, I just thought about something. These church folk, they be cheap. Because <laughs> most of the church, that devil, I'm saying, I did that revelation. Because most of the deep churches that tell you this, they get mad at the not deep churches because all they do is sit down and be comfortable in their worship. It's like, man, they're not expressing. Where's the passion? Where's the zeal? Maybe they ain't soulish. <laughs> Maybe they reach to the level of being the spiritual man. <laughs> Won't none of them say that. Because you can't truly have a heart. You got to have passion. You got to be on fire. But what you do with these emotions? So we got this body, we got these emotions that ain't supposed to be us because we either one or the other or we none of them, we just this spiritual man. And why in the world do we understand who we are? And how in the world does this affect to our everyday living? So this seems just like deep philosophical talk. But it makes a difference. Let's look back at what we looked at. Starting in verse 6. Now the picture we're getting, we talked about this a couple of times. Is This is the original creation of man. And God is zoning in. Because if you just read chapter 1, you can get this deep spiritual picture of man. Because God is way up in the heavens doing all these grand things. Talking and light coming forth. and Stars and moons flashing in the air. Grass just sprouting up right the ground. Whales just start swimming. We don't even know where they come for. They just start swimming. Eagles just start flying. All these things happen. It's like, wow, that's amazing. Then he speaks to himself and he tells man to be. And to be like him. So we see this spiritual concept of man. He up there. He deep. He grand. He elevated. He'd have been separated from all the creation. God made all this other stuff. And now you got this man that's up there that's high. He's elevated. But then you turn to chapter 2. And this is the generations of the earth and the heaven. So he's getting talking about earth. Then he begins to paint this picture of the ground. The herb growing. And he make it to man he says. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. So God's understanding of what he made when he made man, he made a body, he breathed into him breath and man became a living soul. You cannot understand man without understanding that man is all of these things. The body of man is not something outside of man. This is a part of who man is. Because when God made the body, what did he say he formed? Man. He didn't form a shell for man. He didn't form a casing for man. He made man by forming this dust into what we know to be our body. So the biological aspects of who we are is a true part of who we are. You can't be a man without a body. And if we Put the picture all the way out. What's the thing that we're waiting for? When this whole earth is destroyed and everything is all over. We ain't just going to be floating in the air. 
These spiritual little things with little bitty wings floating on clouds. He said, we're going to be resurrected. We get a brand new body and we're going to live on a brand new earth. Man and body not separated. You are man and you forever will have a body because that's a part of who you are. So if you cannot understand yourself in relation and connection with your body, you don't understand yourself. Your body is a part of who you are. And he breathed into him the breath of life or the spirit of life and man became a living soul. So this soul that we understand, that's a part of who you are. And if you read through the Old Testament scriptures, we get this funny thing that happened. The Bible refers to man as both of them. It talks about bodies when it's talking about man. But then when it talks about Jacob going, bringing his family to Egypt, it tells you how many souls there were. It was counting people. Because that's who you are. You are a body. You are a soul. You are a spirit. All of that is you. And if you don't get all of them in right harmony, then you don't get to be man. You're understanding what I'm saying. So how does this stuff flesh out? Like what, 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 what does it mean to all of creation? Go to First Thessalonians. See, let me, let me, let you one of the church scriptures though. First Thessalonians chapter five. And we're going to springboard from here and we're going to focus in. And we're going to come back to that Genesis two, but I just want to. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 23. It says, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. I pray God, your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let the God of peace sanctify you wholly, sanctify you entirely. So this is what Paul praying for that. He want us to be entirely sanctified, entire sanctification. Then he broke it down and said, your body, soul, and spirit be preserved blameless unto the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul's prayer for sanctification is for the sanctification of your body, the sanctification of your soul, and the sanctification of your spirit. And I always like to ask the question, is that possible? Is entire sanctification, is that a real thing? Is that something that can happen and be accomplished with us on this earth? Like, can, can we do that? Is it possible for us to get all these things to be in harmony with the Christ and who God is in all our creation? But before we really answer that, because that's going to take some weeks, we're going to get on this one little point, the picture of what is it that Paul is praying for to be sanctified? Not just your spirit, not just your body, but all of it. Now, I'm going to pick a little bit. And just zone in on this one aspect and I pray you meditate on this and you get the whole picture. Now, if all of these things can be sanctified and if emotions are part of one of these things, that means we can have sanctified emotions. And that's what we're going to pick on for a little bit. That means if all of these things can be sanctified, and emotions are a part of it. We believe these church folk, these deep folk that tell us the soulish man is the seat of the desire, the affection, and all that stuff. That means soulish man can be sanctified, which means emotions, desire, will can be sanctified. There's a right way to be emotional. Now let's pick out another little thing. 
How many of you, now y'all went to these deep churches, y'all already told me, so I know you heard this before. Usually get this sermon around February. They talk about the same thing, about male and female relationships. And some of they get deep with it. And they tell you this thing, and sometimes you get it around Mother's Day, but they leave it alone a little bit on Mother's Day because that's the Mother's Day, so they can't pick on them women. But you get this thing, and this idea is that men, see, they're the logical thinkers. See, they're, they're, they're the ones who, who, who use their mind, they analyze and they rationalize. While women, because they were created to be mothers, they're the emotional ones. Y'all, y'all ever heard that before? So you got, you got this separation of creation. See, God made man in the image of God. And he made male and female in their image. And it, somehow he broke it up. That man get to be one part of the image. And women get to be another part of the image. And when you get them together, you get the whole thing. The Bible don't teach that no one. But we got this idea, and a lot of us believe it. That women are emotional creatures. That's just who they are. That's the way God made them. Men are logical creatures. That's who they are. That's the way that God made them. Even though life tells us that's a lie, we still believe it. Because how many of you have seen a man pretty much ruin his whole life over a woman? You've seen him before. I just think back like I have these spots and moments of my childhood that come back when I be praying and thinking about stuff. I remember this guy. He was dealing with this girl. What type of relationship it was is with your Facebook. What y'all got? Undefined? Or, there ain't that one option? Complicated. That one was complicated. See, they ain't had that then. I ain't know what to call it. But now it's complicated. But it seemed like every other weekend, this dude was getting his windshield bust out. Yes, that's deal. That's real complicated. So my everything be fine. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Then Friday night, folks fussing and hollering and yelling, running around somebody's house. Then when you get there, the whole windshield bust out. He mad, cussing and fussing. Because all his best friends is her cousin, so he can't put his hand on. <laughs> so he mad, he leave, glass all in his car, he drive off. Monday morning, he back again. Baby, I'm sorry. <laughs> and it go on and on and on. Now, if what these preachers told us that they stole from men or from Mars and women from Venus, and made it act like it was from the Bible. If that stuff is true, and these people are really logical, at one point, this logical man would have been able to say, they cost me $180 every weekend. I ain't married to her. I ain't got no commitment to her. I'm cheating on her. Why should I keep coming over? Don't you think the logic would have kicked in after one or two women and one windshield got bust out? <laughs> but we don't see that. But we deny that because the preacher man told us that men are logical. If we see a dude in the Bible, we read it, and they tell us this story before they tell us the other one. Dude named Samson. Messing with these Philistine women. 
went down out to the Philistine women. One of them lied. I mean, turned their back on him, but betrayed him. Ended up costing him all type of coats and all type of money because he made a bet. He ended up burning up a whole field. People wanted to kill him just because this Philistine woman betrayed him. And what did he do? He go find him another Philistine woman. And this woman betrayed him to his face multiple times. To keep himself in this situation and to keep going back, that don't sound too logical, do it? But the church man told us that men are logical and the women are emotional. And you fast forward and we see this dude who we named the wisest man in the Bible, Solomon. His life turns on one verse. It tell you all the great things Solomon did, all the, the money he had and all the, the fame that he had throughout the earth. Then the next chapter opened up with Solomon loved many strange women. And from that point, his whole story go down. It ends in ruin. That one thing, he had affection for many of these strange women. And the amazing thing is, if you read the Proverbs, the first six chapters, one thing keep coming up. That strange woman, her steps go down to hell. Stay away from her. He keep talking about this strange woman. But his life is turned upside down because he said he loved many strange women. That don't seem too logical. To be able to tell the whole world and warn them about the dangers of dealing with the strange woman and see your life go into decay because you're dealing with the strange woman. That don't seem too logical, do it? But yet and still, we believe a lie. That man is this logical being. Women is just emotional. And they let their emotions run you. Say, I watch sports. And the amazing thing about sports is you see the foolishness of men sometimes. Give you an example. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a sports fan, and I used to be a diehard Knicks fan. Now I just root for them. <laughs> I just root for them. But a couple years ago in the playoffs, Knicks struggling. They finally, they get one of their star players back. He been out, feeling down. He been wanting to be the man. Play the game and he lose the game. And you know what he did when he lost the game? He got upset. He got emotional. And he did the logical thing of walking through the locker room and punching the little sign where the, uh, the fire extinguisher be at. Broke his hand and cut it all up. That seems very logical, don't it? You want to play, you want to win, so you do something that makes sure you don't play or win. That's very logical, man. But yet and still, we lead a lie. We believe a lie that men are logical. Women are emotional. Bible don't teach that. All of us got all of it. Because all of us was made after the image of God. God is a being with passion. God is a being of intellect. He's called the word of God, the logos of God, the logic of God is another way to translate that. God is both of them. And if we understand ourselves rightly, we got to get the lie out of our being that we just one of them. Men, in natural man, they ain't logical, they foolish. Women, as natural men, women, they foolish too. Men, be controlled by their emotions. Women can be logical sometimes. 
It, it happens. <laughs> it does happen. So now let, let, let's get to this thing. Since we know we're going to zone in on these emotions. So what role does emotions play in our lives? Are we supposed to just get rid of them? Let's look at a couple of things. Let's start with the easy one. We'll branch out from there. Go to Luke chapter 14. Matter of fact, go back farther. We'll make it back to Luke 14. Go to Isaiah chapter 1. Matter of fact, go back farther than that. Go to Genesis chapter 2 again. <laughs> We're going to touch on all of them. Just go back to something I hinted at before. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says, and the Lord God took man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he called them. And whatsoever called Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle, to all the fowl of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a help meet for him. We'll pause right there. So this is Adam. Now we're seeing this thing. God did an amazing thing when he created Adam. He gave him a job. This is the beginning of creation. All life as we know it first kicked off and Adam got a job. That's the first thing he got, a job. But now it's something subsequent to that that we need to understand. In order for Adam to have a job and to do a job, Adam needed what? Some understanding. Now, if Adam was a blank slate, God created him, nothing up there, and he had to learn everything through his actions, through his impulses, through nature. Because that's part of being a material being. People tell you, you only know what you experience. That's the only way you learn. That's a lie. Adam created, given instructions, given a job, and he fulfilled the task. He started naming every creature. So he named all the cattle, he named all the fowl. Now, the amazing thing is, just think about this, how great Adam's mind was. Not only was he able to name them, he had to be able to think of something different. And not only did he have to be able to think of something different, he had to remember what he named the other one. Because if he don't remember, he get confused and he might name the same thing. I mean, he might name give the same name to about five different things. Then when he's raising up children, he can't tell them what it is. Because he don't remember. So Adam had the ability to understand. Adam had the ability to think and to create. And Adam had the ability to remember. All built into his being. We are children of Adam. And when we have children, knowledge is innate to them. Children are not blank slates. They're not born knowing nothing. Because you can only learn something if you have some sense of knowledge beforehand that's the only way you can get it there's people lying they say well you learn through experience that's a lie 
Because cause and effect needs you to understand that some things cause some things to happen. If you don't know that beforehand, cause and effect don't make no sense. Man is not a blank slate. We need to understand the difference of space and different beings and and identity. We need to understand that one thing is not another thing. All of these things are built into our children. They understand these things because they are created after the image of God. So knowledge is innate to us. You understand what I'm saying? So since knowledge is a part of who we are, thinking is a part of our being, we cannot be man without using this thing. Because it's built into who we are. So now let's make it to Isaiah. And see how this flash flash out a little bit. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 verse, I think it's 28, I won't. Okay, I thought it was 28. All right, 16. We're going to start at 16. It's 18 I was looking for. We're going to start at 16. All right, watch this. So watch you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, said the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Now this is a call to Israel for salvation and to turn their ways. And I want you to notice this thing. He give them commands. Wash yourself. Make you clean. Relieve the oppressed. Tell them all these good things to do. But in the middle of his transition, he called them to something. He said, come now, let us reason together. So he's calling them to him. And in his call to them, he appeals to their intellect. So come, let us reason together. Now let's consider this. Think about this thing. Then he begins to give them reasons of why they should do the things that he just commanded them together. Though your sins be as scarlet, I shall make them white as snow. So he showed them, because you bad, because you jacked up, come to me, I can fix that situation. If you be willing in obedience, or if you desire and do what I say, you're going to eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, Bad things going to happen. And he wanted them to think about this. He wanted them to consider this in their mind and to make a decision. That's deep. And this is a part of us walking and functioning as the image of God. We have the ability to reason. And we must use that reason even in our service of God. Now, we was talking about this Friday night. That most of the gospel appeals we hear today, when people call us to salvation, the focus of it is on our emotions. When people, like you said, you get to that part of the service, the music slow down, they want you to relax, get a little soft and melodic, and people sing them very powerful and emotional songs that, that provoke, make you just start crying, just when, just when you listen to it. It's all an appeal to the emotions. And the whole draw is to get you to have an emotional response because emotions have the ability to drive us and push us and compel us with more power and more fervor than what they would say cold reason has the ability to do. 
You, you understand that. And like I said, when we understand human beings, we can see that. Like I said, if you take that basketball player and you just tell him, hey, man, if you lose a basketball thing, I think you need to punch the wall so you can break your hand. He'll look at you like a fool. But in the moment when the emotion rising, he just do it. Because motion, emotions take over and it creates a fool out of the man. Thank you. Like if you tell that woman, hey, the best thing for you to do is to marry a lazy, no good, sorry joker who don't care nothing about you. And you allow him to send you to work while he sit at home and spend up all your money. You allow him to cheat on you while you pretend that you don't know that's going on. You allow him to mistreat you because he loves you. Now, if you say it like that, nobody will sign up for that. But if you reverse things and you allow emotions to fuel your decisions first before you allow the intellect to understand what's going on, what you create is a situation where you get that. Because people are driven by things that are not intended to drive. So when God calls us to make a decision, he said, come, let us reason together. Go to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. All right, we're going to start at verse 25. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. It says, and there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower, sit it down not first and count it the cost wherewith he have sufficient to finish it. Least happily after he had laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. A wet king going to make war against another king, sit it not down first, and consulted whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand, or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sent it in ambassage and desired conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. That's deep. Jesus is, was a hard preacher. He opened this thing up with, you must hate father, mother, wife, children, own life more than me. And he ends with, whoever can't forsake everything cannot be my disciple. So you got to be willing to put everything below him and you got to be willing to forsake everything if you want to be his disciple. That's deep. That's That's, that's real deep. That don't sound like that what man be saying when he be playing at night piano. It don't sound the same. You, you don't hear that appeal too much. You, you take people where they are. Jesus take you where you are, from where you are, and you got to be all of me. But he put this thing in the middle in 28. He said four. So to explain his idea about being willing to forsake everything, even your own life to follow him, he gives two parables. And these things are to explain it. Talking about a man building a tower. He said the first thing the man that's going to build a tower do is sit down, count up his pennies. 
See, do he got enough money to finish it? Then he gives an example of a king going to war. So the first thing the king going to do before he go out there and declare war, he going to count up his soldiers. He going to count up their soldiers and see, do he got enough soldiers to win the war? And if he come to the conclusion that he ain't got enough, before them folk get there, he going to send some folk and say, hey, man, we don't want to fight. He ain't got to be all that. You always want to get mad, man, bro. I wouldn't even talk like that. <laughs> but look at the picture. The forsaken all, the putting everything below him, the example he give is sitting down counting the cost. It's not an emotional appeal. So in the mind of God, when we make life transforming decisions, you need to make the decision. Coming to him, let us reason together. Forsaking everything for him, he considered that counting the cost. So what he's saying is when you come to this Jesus thing, you need to sit down and make up in your mind whether or not you're willing to give up everything to follow him. Because if you're not willing to make that decision, you ain't ready to follow him. But what if I'm in the moment and, and the man told me, he told everything that's going on in my heart. I was at the youth camp. Then they start singing the song, we fall down, but we get up. And I, and I, and I remember it and I know that I fell down. And all I need is another chance. He's saying, calm yourself down. Sit down and count the cost. And understand whether or not you be willing to forsake everything for him. So if you're in that moment and you caught up, but you still got in your mind, but I love him. You ain't ready. Because you got to be willing to make the decision to sacrifice everything just to be with him. But the main point I want to point out is how Jesus understood. I thought these decisions were supposed to be made. It's not a compulsion of the sense that you be overwhelmed and you just do. No, we make decisions off reason, off intellect. When it talks about Romans 12 that we sacrifice our body and be transformed by the renewing of our mind and all that stuff it says this is your only reasonable service it's the logical thing it's the thing that makes sense this is who we are so the way that we make decisions is based off reason understanding we make decisions they're not made for us are y'all tracking with me so what do emotions fit into this picture but we understand this one point Emotions don't make decisions. And you cannot make a decision based off emotion. Reason does. Intellect does. So when you get into that relationship with that man, have a reason why you're ready to devote yourself to this food. And if your reason tied back to, he make me feel good, that ain't no reason. That's an emotion. And even if that's the ultimate reason for you, if you can't say in your head that this making me feel good is enough for me to devote my whole life no matter what else happens after this, you don't need to make that decision. Because one thing is about feelings, they fickle and they change. They don't last forever. The thing that felt good today could be irritating tomorrow. So if all you got is he make me feel good, what when he stopped making you feel good? Now you put yourself in a dilemma 
where you have to contort your understanding of scripture and put yourself in a position. Now you got to make up justifications to do the things that you know you ain't supposed to be doing. Because the feelings is the thing that dictated and control how it is you relate to people. You understand what I'm saying? So let's let look at these things. Couple feelings. Let's take the easy one. Anger. Y'all would classify that as an emotion. All right, let's go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. All right, Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to go to verse 26. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor with his hands, labor with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that need it. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be ye kind one toward to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Now, this is a good little piece. And it opens up with a very common verse that we all heard of multiple times. Be you angry and sin not. That's deep. We understand that. It tell us, be angry. Just don't sin in your anger. But the reason I kept reading is for a reason. It keep going to all this other stuff we both don't supposed to do. Then we make it down to 31. And it said, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. Now, hold up. Paul must forgot what he wrote. So he ain't had that mind Adam had. He couldn't remember. Within the flow of one less than a paragraph, he told you to be angry. Then he told you to put away anger. How can you do both? How can you be angry and put away anger? And this is the point where we must understand anger. And the first one is a quote from Psalms 4.4. It says, stand in awe and sin not. Commune with the Lord upon your bed. And the idea is, there's the possibility for us to be disturbed from within. That something can disturb us, something can shake us, that something can, can create within us frustration, emotions. But those motions don't control us. So when he said be angry and sin not, what he's saying is be be disturbed on the inside. Allow things to move you, but don't allow them to move you to sin. And if we truly understand anger, we can understand this. Because anger is a response to an injustice. That's the purpose of anger. Anger is a response to a perceived injustice. And if we put anger in its proper place, the things that anger us would not. What do you mean by that? Let's just take the picture of Jesus. We got a couple of times where Jesus went off in, in, in the gospel. One of them when he went and cleansed the temple. He did it twice. And it says, zeal for thy father's house have consumed me. And he went in there, he, he wrecking shop. He turning over tables, breaking cages, throwing pigeons off Making it rain, throwing people money all there. Well, <laughs> see, Jesus first wanted to make it rain. <laughs> That's what Jesus did. 
Then you got a time, not too far after that, where some folks snatched Jesus' beard out, they spit on him, they mocked him, slapped him in his face like, if you're a real prophet, tell me who hit you. That's what they did to Jesus. I laugh every time I read it too. I don't know why. And Jesus responded by saying what? Nothing. Now we got two different pictures of Jesus displaying anger. Or being in predicaments that should produce anger. Now one of them wouldn't make us mad and the other one would. And if we be honest with ourselves, the one that didn't make him mad will make us mad. And the one that disturbed him, we ignore it. And the thing that made him mad was the disgrace and the disrespect of his father. In the thing that his father has created. That produced passion within him. That produced uh, anger within him. That caused, caused him to respond. Now when people came at him. He knew and understood who he was and what his purpose was. That produced nothing in him. He didn't respond. And when he finally responded he prayed for them. Their father forgive them. They know not what they do. Because. Injustice is the thing that should anger us. It's the thing that should cause a disturbance within us. Not self-preservation. Y'all understanding what I'm saying? I'll give you the picture. I talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago. The Bible told us that we need to have the mind of Christ. And deeper than that, it said we do have the mind of Christ. Then when it begins to describe the mind of Christ, it talks about the mind of humility. Where you humble yourself and you serve other people and you elevate other people above yourselves. That's the mind of Christ. Now, if I esteem Cabronica better than me, ain't too much Cabronica could do that I perceive that, no, nah, she shouldn't did that to me. Because I understand who I truly am. So if she responds to me in a harsh way, that don't disturb me. I know who I am. And a part of who I am is a servant of her. Now, since I'm a servant of her and she responds to me in a harsh way, my heart should break. Because she claimed to be a Christian. And she got all this anger controlling her. She don't know how to treat people. I'm sad for her. And I can correct her for the purpose of helping her, not for the purpose of defending me. You get what I'm saying? Because it ain't about defending me. I'm saying I Lay down my life. Let the Lord fight my battle. That was that what we sang in the song. <laughs> not by might, but by my not by power, but by your spirit, said the Lord God. We know what we say. But we still need to defend ourselves. Then is it my, said the Lord. He will repay. But we still feel the need to defend ourselves. So when I respond to Cabronica, I can respond to her according to my understanding of life in the way things are supposed to be. Not emotionally. Because I ain't responding out of hurt. I'm responding out of love and compassion. Hey, Cabronica. That little bit, you went a little overboard in the way you responded to me like that. Could you not do that again, please, man? It's not good for you to treat people like that. And she go off and say, you don't tell me what to do. I don't know who you think you are. You ain't my dad. (laughs) Now, if I truly believe her to be a sister, I back off a little bit and I, hey, Jay, man, you need to talk to your girl. Well, she tripping. 
if I truly understand her just to be a regular heathen, she's doing what she's supposed to do. I back off and leave her alone. I try to help you. You ain't want me to help. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Because the way I respond is not based off how I feel. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Being precedes doing. I respond to her based off who I am. I am a man created in the image of God. And as the image of God, we make decisions based on our reason, our understanding, our intellect based off of what the truth is. That's how we relate to people. So that be angry and sin not, it's, you can be disturbed. When your children lie to you directly in your face, that should disturb you. But that don't mean take your shoe off and slap them across the face and knock them halfway through the room. <laughs> that ain't what that means. <laughs> so if every time you respond, boom, you see children flying, boom, you got holes all in the <laughs> It's like the roller derby off in your house. They running and you just, <laughs> that ain't right. Because the only reason you're doing what you're doing is you upset. And that's why sometimes they can halfway kill each other and it don't bother you. It's just till they get too loud and you missing your show and you told them to shut up and I ain't got time for this today. That's when you go off and you just start slapping everybody. But when your brother suplexes <laughs> the other one almost broke his neck, y'all two need to sit down, you know. <laughs> that, that's the end of it. My brother, he, he broke my arm. What would you break your brother off for? Don't do that no more. <laughs> then they spill juice on your carpet. Can I tell y'all <laughs> Don't y'all tell about drinking juice in here. And, oh, y'all ain't gonna ever get juice ever again. <laughs> That's cause you responding out of what? Anger. Amen. But the proverb tells us that the rod with reproof. They're supposed to go hand in hand. See, we, we got it messed up. And church both told you, you spat a rod, you hate your son. That's an interpretation of a biblical text. But if you read all on Mr. Rod with reproof. So they got to get both of them. Because if you just beating all he knows you mad. He ain't learned nothing. And what he learned is don't do that round mama. She going to go off. <laughs> Y'all understanding what I'm saying? So emotions are something that we use to add fuel, to add passion to our actions, but they don't control our actions. And they are something that respond to the world. They don't tell us what reality is. They respond to reality. You get what I'm saying? Just because you feel like you were disrespected, does that mean you were disrespected? Not necessarily. Because it would be a misunderstanding. What you thought I said, something I didn't even say. But if you allow your feelings to create the reality for you, now you live in that. Are you understanding what I'm saying? We need to make decisions based off truth, understanding what we know. That's why Jesus said, no man, you don't make unrighteous judgments. What do you mean by that? 
is you don't judge the things that you cannot judge. And unrighteous judgment is err and do something. And I ascribe meaning, purpose, and interpretate all of Aaron's action in relation to me. I don't know that. So now I begin to live with Aaron in a certain way because of what I perceive to be his conception of me. So I don't allow the way I feel about what he did to create a reality for me. I'm not living based off what I know. I'm living based off what I assume. So now I got this whole reality and me and Aaron, we can't bang like we used to bang. Because that brother, he low down. He don't care nothing about me. What he did? He knocked my Bible on the floor. (laughs) 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 And when I finally get up the curtain and say, hey, man, you've been tripping lately, man. You be like, man, what you talking about, man? Oh, man, you, you know what I'm saying? You just been wilding out, man. I thought we were cool. I thought we were better than that. He's looking at me like I'm a fool. Like, we are cool. What you talking about? See, man, you always doing stuff. You know what I'm saying? Every, every time, I'm saying, you you always, then like, man, what I do? Man, you know. <laughs> like, what, 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 what the deal is, man? You know. Man, forget it. I ain't got time for it, cause I see. Then Aaron be like, man, what, he go talk to Jay. What's wrong with him? Man, two weeks ago, you knocked the Bible on the floor. Because <laughs> I tell him, I ain't told him nothing. But in his mind, it's like the big long list of things he's been doing for forever. He just did the one little thing that he wasn't even conscious of the fact that he did. But because I've been stuck on that and allow my emotions to create a reality, I done create a whole narrative of all this stuff that he done. And when I be honest, the name, and I can't name but one, and it was something he ain't even intend to do. That's foolishness. And that's something, contrary to what the church folk tell you, men and women do. Because we all have will and we all have emotions and all of it is a part of who we are. So what we need to do is get those things into proper perspective and allow ourselves to live as God created us to live. And we don't allow emotions to rule us. But we allow them to be the passion that backs the things that we do. The emotion I have for my wife fuels the way I respond to her. But let's just say the emotions don't don't be as strong sometimes because I'm tired. And I can't just, just stir up the emotions. Does that mean I'm supposed to do it with the same fervor and zeal? No. Because I do it out of love for her. It's a will thing, not an emotion thing. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So the same passion that I will have when all my emotions are revved up and it's an exciting time, I still should be able to do the same thing. The same way you should be able to get your kids and discipline them when they done got on your nerve to make you mad, you should be able to sit them down and do the same thing when it's something that you don't even think a big deal. You, you understand what I'm saying? And not allow our emotions to create a reality for us. Colossians chapter 3 make this bold statement. For time, let's just t- take it in. It says that we need to set our affection on things above where Christ is seated. So set your affections on things above where Christ is seated. Now, the amazing thing is about that, when you're talking about set your affections, that same word that is used to translate it as affection is elsewhere translated as understanding, thinking, and earnestly 
with passion. So we got one word that connects all of these things. Like, what's the significance of that? So when we think about it, we say set your affection. That means get your emotions up in heaven and you just got to be high in the worship time. That ain't what it means. That means that the center of your being, your thinking, and the passion that dwells within you should all be based on these heavenly things. But that also shows us that there's a connection to thinking and feeling. Because if the same word can be used to translate it affection, desire can be used to translate it mind, understanding, that means there's a connection between the mind, the thinking, and the understanding, the affections, and the desires. All of them connect. And these responses we have in us is based on things that we believe that creates the responses that we have within us. So what we have to do is allow the Spirit of God to transform our belief. Let me give you a quick example. Let me take this home. I love to do this messing with guys. And we witnessing it. And guys, they get hung up. Like, man, man, can't nobody live without sin. Like, why you say so? Because, man, you, is it so easy to sin, man? Sin like everywhere. So, man, like, uh, you don't be lusting after the women. Always the response. You don't, you don't be lusting after the women. If Jesus said you look with lust, I'm saying that's a sin. So you commit adultery all the time. And I would like to play this game. I'm like, man, you got a, you got a sister, you got a mama, cousin, something like that. Like, yeah. It's like, this is a little bit far-fetched. But I'm willing to bet your sister, mama, cousin, all that stuff, do they got thighs? Do they got breasts? Like, do you got a fine cousin? <laughs> and they look like, what would you look like? What the world? Like, what you mean? Because, like, man, so you ain't never just been checking out your sister like that. <laughs> she got the same stuff the other girl got walking around here. So why, when you see that, you get, girl, go back in the house. You don't need to be around all your boys with that stuff on. But when you see that one, you be like, oh, man. You're looking at the same thing. You are the same person. So what changed? Man, that's my sister. Ha. Huh. So your understanding and your perception of something has the ability to can change or control the way you respond to it. So let, let me know thinking is primary to emoting. So if I change my mind about something, it has the ability to change the way I feel about something. Because being is primary to doing. Emoting is an expression of doing are you understanding what I'm saying? So if we get the picture and if we truly born again and if the gospel truly works, now I got this thing where all the ladies are my sisters or sinners in need of salvation. And the unbeliever and the believer ain't supposed to get together. So none of them is one I can just go and get with real quick. All of that is off the table. You get what I'm saying? So if your mind is transformed to that point, that this is my sister that I need to help and love, or this is a sinner that I need to lead to salvation, the emotional response changes a little bit because you view them differently. So when you see the little girl bending over twerking, you say, where her dad at? <laughs> what in the world wrong? Little girl, you don't put your pants on? Get yourself, get your hands off that ground. <laughs> Because that's what you'll do with your little niece. 
if you want her to be right. She got the same thing. You understanding what I'm saying? It's emotions, but it's the, our understanding of it. And what we need to get about, get our mind right and get everything in proper perspective and stop letting emotions be the dictators of our reality. So when you wake up and you just feeling bad and they ask you, what's wrong? Nothing, I just feel bad. That's a what? Emotion. Now, does that emotion mean that this is a bad day? No. Does that emotion mean that can't nobody say nothing to you today? No. All that emotion is telling you how you feel. Now, is that feeling proper? Because that's what we live based off of. So if you can be honest with yourself and you can say, man, I'm mad. About what? I don't know. Something made me mad. Now, if we're understanding beings and we're beings who live according to our reason, what we would say is, if I don't even know what made me mad, what I'm mad for? It wasn't that significant. I don't know why I'm feeling bad, why I let this control who I am. And we have the ability to obey the scriptures. We can sing. We can song. We can sing a song. We can pray. The Bible says if you're anxious, do what? Make your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God shall guard your heart and mind. So if you wake up with anxiety and you're worried about something, you don't let that worry control you. You understand? This is what I'm worried about. And you take it to God. Say, I'm worried about this, 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 and this. You need to do something about that. That's the end of it. Instead of allowing it to control you and say, this is the end of the day, man. I ain't well be able to do nothing. I'm saying, I'm trying to be. Like I said, it create that narrative for you. Now, what the narrative become? See, I was in high school. I tried to be on the debate team and they wouldn't let me on now. I tried to play basketball. I couldn't dribble. Everything I do, I fail at. I'm saying, and you go and re, you recount all your failures and you recount all the bad decisions you made. You recount all the bad relationships you was in and you recount all the things that you said you were going to do and you never did. And now you almost 30 and you still ain't got no house and you still are by yourself and you single and you still ain't reach your goal and potential because you had these careers mapped out and you knew where you were going to go and you knew what you were going to do and it just means I'm just a failure. I can't ever be nothing. I can't do nothing right. That's how we think. I don't know why I ever thought like that. Well, you said only remember the bad stuff. Man, my man, my life horrible, dog. I'm saying, golly, man, my granddaddy died, my grandma died, now my girlfriend left me, the hub cap fell off my car, I don't know where it is. <laughs> Everything I get, I lose it. That's the reality we create when we allow motions to dictate reality instead of just respond to them. And we use our reason to guide us and we make decisions instead of allowing them to be made for us. You get what I'm saying? So when you get them crazy thoughts, what you do? Take them to the Father and you reason with him and allow him to reveal what truth is to you. Because we don't live off what we feel. We don't even live off what we see. We live off what we know to be true. And that is God is in control. He reigns. He rules over all things. And he's with me at all times. No matter what I feel like. No matter what it looks like. I got access to the great God of the universe. And that what allows me to live the way I'm supposed to live. Are y'all with me? And now we're going to tie this in to talk about corruption. And the way sin dominates us. And how we overcome temptation.
Anybody got any questions? Okay, when you were talking about um, like the emotional appeal that a lot of people make for getting saved and how God said we need to sit down and count the cost. And I was saying, how do you reconcile that with, with people feeling like, because uh, you'll also have people won't come to Christ because they'll say, um, I can't do it. Or, you know, I'm not going to, uh, I know I'm not going to do right. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to, ain't no need for me to come right now. So how do you reconcile that thing about sitting down and counting the cost with, you know, telling them, okay, you need to count the cost, but then, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, how do you deal with that? That thought that they have to fix themselves or clean themselves up or make sure they're ready before they come. Because that all that is, that's a lie. So the way you come about a lie is with the truth. So when a person has that thought, has that emotions, or has those feelings, what that shows and demonstrates is they don't understand the gospel. Because the person that thinks that, well, I don't want to go to God because I don't want to disappoint him. And I know I ain't ready to do such and such and such and such. They don't understand that the only way you can do what God wants you to do is by coming to God. And if the only way you can not disappoint him is if he not change you. So that shows their lack of understanding. They still think that a part of this thing or keeping themselves is a part of what they have to do. That's not the gospel. All we need to do is believe and trust in Jesus to sacrifice ourselves wholly to him and he do the rest of the work. So we have, that's a sign that they don't know. And so that's part of the danger of the emotional appeal because you get completely ignorant people who get saved for reasons other than God and his grace and mercy. You get get what I'm saying? So they don't understand it. So that's how you end up with situations like the parable of the soul. Said the root ain't deep in them. So when the troubles of this life come, it uprooted and they turn away from them because they don't understand. They don't have any understanding. In the beginning of the parable, it said the devil come take away the word song because they didn't understand it. So you get that emotional response and they just respond, did not understanding the gospel, still thinking that they got something to do, still thinking that it's on them. And if they going to walk away from God, they end up walking away from God because they're not believing the gospel. They just, I don't know what they believe. You, you, you get what I'm saying? So that's a part of counting the cost, understanding and knowing what it is that God has declared. So once you get that little bit and you got a full understanding, you trust in that and God will unfold all the rest of it. But you have to understand what it is you're responding to. Also, can you explain, I guess, quickly if you can, uh, what does it mean exactly to be transformed by the renewing of your mind? That's Romans 12. What it means to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's another synopsis of basically being born again, being made brand new. So. The picture that the Bible gives us, Ezekiel 36 is the clearest picture of it. We talk about it all the time. Is that God going to come inside of us. He's going to give us a new heart. Give us a new spirit. And then put his spirit inside of us. And that's going to cause us to walk according to his statutes. That we receive the mind of Christ. That we brand new creatures were made new. So the picture is that mind that you have that causes you to walk according to the course of this world. And fulfill your own lusts and evil desires. God's going to take that away from you and give you a new mind. And that new mind is going to transform you because your way of thinking is going to change. All everything about you changes what transforms your way of life. But like I said, the misconception about it is people think this new mind getting is something I have to do. So I got to go out and, and, and try some stuff 
and re-educate myself so that I can get a transform new mind so that I can transform my living. No. The transformation is something that happens to you. The new mind is something that happens to you once you're born again. And all you got to do is yield to that work and allow God to do what he do. And that's the transformation. You, you understand what I'm saying? Makes a little sense. Sure. All right. If you humble, what does that mean? Humble? To be humble means it's the opposite of being proud. You think of yourself lowly and with a proper mind. You don't put too much of yourself. You don't think you're better than other people. Uh, <clears throat> all type of stuff like that. So a humble person, you understand yourself correctly. Like So when you make all A's, you don't run around the class saying, ha, you flunk. Y'all don't understand. <laughs> but you recognize that God gave you a mind and he gave you the ability to learn and your mama helped you with your homework. Okay, so when I guess when you're correcting somebody and they make or when you are angry at something that you should be angry at, when do you turn up like Jesus did and when do you not? Or like I guess like I guess is that like supposed to be listening to the Holy Spirit, I guess, or like just be aware of how you're supposed to deal with certain people. Like certain people you're supposed to be like rebuking and other people. Well, I guess just like more of a softer proof, if that makes sense. You know, I think I understand what you're talking about. The scripture give us a a couple of principles on that. One, like I said, it does take wisdom and the understanding of the Holy Spirit. But the Bible talks about Jesus and the meekness of him and not breaking a bruised reed. So the broken things he know how to handle with care. And if you look through the Gospels, when Jesus dealt with people, the more compassionate, softer tones were held for the sinners and the seekers. He dealt with them where they were. So when you got somebody close to the kingdom and you realize his brokenness in them, his, his hurt, his pain, his spiritual attack or something, you deal with them on a different level than you would do to an obstinate person who's just anti, who know and understand what you're talking about, but just refuse to do so. Like I said, he never called the woman at the well a viper. You, you get what I'm saying? Now, she came to him with some religious stuff, too. She talked about where we're supposed to worship, so on and so forth. But she was more humble and seeking. Then the Sadducees, who was coming at him, attacking him, just to shut him up and show him he wrong. So the way he dealt with them was a little more tougher than how he dealt with that person. And the Bible talks about how us, we, we been, need to learn how to bear one another's burdens. So when you see your brother taken in the fault, he said, you do it with all humility, humility of mind. And lowliness, you return that brother back into the faith. So you go into it with a sensitivity. You go into it with a sense of understanding that this is something that can happen to anybody that drifts and allow themselves to be taken into the world. You don't elevate yourself. But when you're dealing with that brother, but now if there's a brother who out here and he's teaching and he's showing your other sisters that a certain lifestyle that you know to be wrong is good and God called that right and that Y'all need to come sleep with me because the Bible don't say this, such and such. No, you deal with that brother a little bit different. <laughs> you, you get what I'm saying? You, you deal with him a little bit different than you would deal with 
the one who just lost an understanding, who's been caught into a fault. He messed up. He slipped. And you know him and your sister got, in, got into it and they did something they weren't supposed to do. Now he broken over. He crying. And you won't know how I did this. Oh, God. You deal with him a little different than man. Okay, that's just what it is. Yeah, God understand I'm a man. And so there's some wisdom in the way you navigate those things. And James 1 tells us that we, when we lack wisdom, we need to ask of God who gives it to us liberally. So there's sometimes there's some institutions where God puts you in what you, you need to just, like you said, turn up. And you just go off with all the holy passion in you. And the other time when you go in and you pull the leader to the side and you get them straight. Or you pull the people to the side because you know they're following the food. And they don't know no better. So it's all in the wisdom thing. But when we're dealing personally with people, we deal with people as people. Where they are. It makes a little sense to you. Yeah. Any more questions? I got. Go ahead. Oh, that's why you had to sit down. So you... <laughs> hey, could you explain the par- uh, the talents parable to me? Like, what are talents and what exactly does it mean that you reveal it to me? Like, <laughs> all right, the parable of the talents. I can do you a quick one. You're gonna have to get all the revelation yourself. Now, on the surface, a talent is money. That's all it was in the parable. It was just money, and so. <clears throat> The basis of the parable of the talents is stewardship and understanding the role in your relationship with the king. So he gave them talents, some five, some another one, two, another one, one. He tells a couple of different parables. Now, one, we can learn from that that God ain't no socialist. What you mean by that? They all got different things. And God didn't feel obligated to say, oh, man, I ain't realized I gave you five and I gave him two. Now I need to go back and get him to. No, that's just the reality. That's life. Everything ain't going to be equal. That's just the world that we live in. But the thing is, you're responsible for what it is that you have. And so the way you use that is the thing you have to answer for. So they was required to take the talents, to take the thing that God has given them and to use it, to multiply it and to do it in a way that when he come back, he got more than what he gave and it's something that he's proud of. Now, we flesh because it's a parable, so it extends to our understanding of the kingdom. God gave you something. He put something in your hand. He gave you trust over something. You're responsible for it. You're a steward over it. You're going to have to respond to God the way you do it. You ain't to take it and hide it and hold it and be just so afraid, afraid of not of messing up that you do nothing, but you can't corrupt it and use it the way you want to either. And it makes a little sense to you. So let's say something simple. God told you how to talk. That's a gift you have from God. You can create talking yourself. Now, you can take speech and you can do a whole bunch of things with it. You can use it to make songs. You can use it to preach. You can use it to do a plethora of things. You can multiply that thing. You can learn different languages. And you can preach the gospel in multiple languages. All these different ways you can use this one little gift that he's given you, but you got to use it for him and you got to use it to make it greater than what it was when he gave you. It, it makes a little sense to you. But in this parable, talent ain't nothing but a form of money. But it's using a picture to show stewardship and things that God has entrusted to us. That works with your money too. <laughs> You're a steward over it. You got to use it in a way that's pleasing to him, in a way that when he come back, he's better than what he was when he gave it to you. Make sense? So now you meditate on it, you get the full picture and application. 
Get that revelation, the rhema word. <laughs> Anybody else got any questions? And I've had uh, this to come up several times. Uh, on Thursday, the man came out to fix my cable. Mm -hmm. And this scripture came up again. Uh, it said in the In the first chapter of Genesis, the 26th verse, mm -hmm. when it said God, before he breathed the breath of life into Adam, it said, then God said, let us. Mm -hmm. who, who were he talking about? Because this was before Adam was created. created. So this man was, you know, saying about the, um, what is the apes and all of this, I I run into this several times, but I want to find out who were he talking about when he said, let us create, you know, and man in our likeness. Okay. <clears throat> it is a controversial one. So you saying this man was talking about the us was yeah, apes uh, and all that the, stuff? Uh, Cause he had created uh, all the animals. animals before. Yeah. And he was like, <laughs> You know. Okay, that deep right now. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, I, this is not the first time I ran into this. Yeah. But when it comes to the us, <laughs> the one, when you look at it, what we read in chapter one and chapter two, just even with his false statement, is you see that Adam had dominion over all them animals and all those things. Right there in the very next verse. So if God was using animals to make man, then he gave man dominion over animals. That don't make sense. Because if the animals was a part of the creation, to making man, that would elevate them above man. But they were below man because Adam was telling them what to do and telling them who they were. So they were subject. You say God gave him dominion over all those things. But when you're talking about to us, in the picture, we see this a couple of times. In Genesis 11, it talks about let us go down and see what man doing. But even in that, what you see is, is the us turns into a singular. So God said, let us make man in our likeness, in our image. He said, then in the image of God, he created man. So he created man in the image of one, and one is the one that did it. So God did it himself, and it was in the image of God, a singular being that man was created. So our understanding of this us got to connect with our understanding of this creation. So the way I understand it, this us is the Trinitarian existence of God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because it's one God that did the creating, and it's one God that we were made in the image of. And every time it talks about us being made in the image, it goes back to God. It connects back to him and not anything else. And when it talks about creation, God over and over again, he boasts about it. He's like, I did it myself. I'm saying that the sons of God, they sung praises when I laid the foundation of the earth. They weren't doing nothing. He said, I created alone. I formed everything through Isaiah like 42 to like 46. Over and over again, he boasts and brag about him being the creator and him making everything and everything existing for his pleasure, everything existing for his good and his will. So he's the only one that made so can't nobody else get credit for creation. So it can't be nobody with God that's making it. 
So our only conclusion is that this us is the plurality of God, that God is a Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, I don't know where he get them animals making it from. That well, that's where he, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that was a bit heavy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was deep. I like that. that was, he's very imaginative. <laughs> Any other questions? That's it? All right.